0: Hey everybody, welcome back to a mighty new X for podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chronos Gaming, Classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me wielding Yarnborn over on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N. And we have an amazing Asgardian X I Four P premiere for you today. We're gonna kick things off with Jane Foster and the Mighty Thor number one, which is Jane Foster Valkyrie Legacy number twenty. Before turning our attention to our long-awaited coverage of Jason Aaron's Avengers, kicking things off with the proper first volume. That's Free Comic Book Day 2018, and then Avengers by Jason Aaron and Ed- McGinnis 1 through 6. But first up is the most recent issue of Jane Foster as Valkyrie and yet also a little bit as Thor and of course it times out perfectly with the film. It gives us an issue with both her name and the name Thor in the title. It's got some great iconography for the film and you know it's just so fantastic to see Torin Grunbeck stand into her own as the writer on the title. Not that I don't love so much and nearly every word of what Jason Aaron did as the guy who made Jane Foster a recognizable household Marvel superhero name but it's so important to see female writers come in and write these female characters in a way that reflects the experience of being a woman and the steps it takes to bring that sort of representation into our our comics it's just such a treat to get to read and i love this issue and we hope you guys love our coverage just as much as we loved bringing it to you and don't forget if you guys want to find out more you can check us out over on twitter at x is for podcast Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another mighty installment of X's for Podcast, your home for modern Marvels, chrono-skimming, classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me waving my hammer on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's
1: N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hey, everybody. It's Nathan. You can find me on Twitter at AOA where I will be standing Amora, even though she is evil, 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 but she is such my hot little evil lady. She's your evil. <laughs>
2: Hey, everybody. I'm Tori. You can find me on Twitter at Tori underscore Sheehan and on Instagram at smtori. That's Tori with an I. Where I am, you know, uh, the average bisexual queer girl who likes knitting and other easy hobbies and dating Tessa Thompson. It's fine. <laughs> it's
1: fine. <laughs> who doesn't? What well, bisexual person doesn't want to date Tessa Thompson? Hmm.
3: And I'm TK. You can find me checking the mailbox for the Ross Solomon Fan Club on Twitter and Instagram at x. And
4: I'm Jonah. And you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience unlike this giant elaborate plot for Amora to finally have Thor.
0: (laughs) So I am so excited to be here to talk about Jane Foster and the Mighty Thor, number one, which is Jane Foster Valkyrie Legacy number 20. Really glad to see Marvel feeling comfortable calling this the 20th issue of the Valkyrie series, even though the titling and the numbering has been disrupted. This is brought to us by Torin Grunbeck, who it is so incredible that a singular female voice has had the opportunity to write jane this long but we are welcoming new to this incredible creative team michael dowling with color artist jesus albertov returning who's been on the title since the pages of the valkyrie ongoing we have letters and production as we've had explained to us by ariana mar that's always a really significant term and terminology difference so awesome <laughs> stuff from vc's Sabino, and we have an incredible number of covers but of course i want to point out the ryan stegman jp mayer and Martha gracia cover uh did anybody pick up the peach did anybody oh, pick I have the, the- each one, it is beautiful. I'm going to get myself the Carmen Canero one. I just think it's great. So it's, yeah, I totally get it. I am, I just, I feel like this is such a cool time to love Jane. Like, I can't get my smile down. Getting <laughs> to talk about Jane is always like the best part of the show for me because, you know, she's Jane. And, you know, Electra might have something to say about that. But so I was explaining so much of this to Tori last night. <laughs> Tori was and yet, like, and yet I still have on. more
2: questions because who's this bitch in a red coat? who is she because like you're all like oh this is this is Amora's crazy plot to get Thor and I'm like no I think it's this bitch in a red coat well so a little bit of
0: background on where Tori's coming from while the cultural interpretation of Thor is of course you know Chris Hemsworth guy standing there with pixelated junk there is the unavoidable cultural insertion of Jane Foster's Thor Jane Foster rose to prominence as Thor after something less than a hundred appearances before initially wielding the hammer in the pages of jason aaron's run jason aaron's coveted run covers something like four volumes of thor by name she is a complex character with a powerful narrative jane is suffering from cancer and when she wields mjolnir it resets her to the moment that she began wielding mjolnir which purges the chemotherapy from her body leaving her sick every time she becomes thor it pushes her body further and further but she knows the world needs a hero and if odinson can't be worthy and she is then that's her job as a doctor and oh my gosh anyway a lot of stuff happens and without spoiling anything for anybody ultimately because marvel loves a good status quo we find the unworthy odinson worthy again and of course in possession of mjolnir that left jane without a title and through the magic machinations of editorial genius we find ourselves with jane foster as a very different kind of valkyrie which still left room for the addition of tessa thompson's valkyrie runa i believe literally nathan you have been on Every piece of Runa coverage, literally. Yes.
1: Yeah. Runa's my girl.
0: She is. Correct me if I'm mistaken. She's the first Valkyrie, and her initial weapon that was created for her by Odin was my precious Yarnborn.
1: Yes. Yeah. So she was part of. I don't. I don't know. She was the first, but she was part of the first Valkyries, right? So, and then that all of those Valkyries have since passed and has been passed on to several generations of Valkyries. But yes, Yarnborn is her axe, and Thor's like, nope, I'm not gonna fucking give it up. It's mine. (laughs) And she's like, but it's mine first. She doesn't care that he's king.
0: Nah, she doesn't care. Why would she? (laughs) Now, she's also similar to a parallel Runa from a recent Exile series. Yeah, Yeah, I feel like I don't know enough about that version of the character, but I am always excited to get more out of these amazing interpretations of the Valkyrie because still out there is Brunhilde as well as a number of, I think, other Valkyries at this point. I
1: believe Brunhilde is still in, I was going to say Sova. I think she's still (laughs) (laughs) that's that's not the right place. I believe Brunilda is in Valhalla.
2: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Now I want to check in with everybody about their relationship with Thor proper and Jane Foster. I mean, obviously I could wax poetic eternally about my relationship with these two characters and how much they define me. Uh, but I think it's safe to say you can just click through the archives and get, you know, a good sense of it by volume alone. <laughs> Where does everybody stand? on Jane Odinson as, you know, he is named and the cultural understanding of this Thor identity that transfers between the two.
1: Okay, so like my love of Asgard is like different than a lot of maybe standard Marvel fans. Like I came into it through X-Men, right? And what does X-Men deal with a lot? Valkyrie. So then like that started my love of old school defenders. Then, you know, later on, you know, when Jane becomes Valkyrie, I was like, oh my God, but like my... Uh, Start of my obsession with Thor was when they revealed the new Thor. So I read those issues and I was like, holy hell. And then I was like, it's Jane. Oh my God, it's Jane. Because remember, there's that mystery at first because we we're like, didn't know who the new Thor was, but it was Jane. And I was like, this makes so much sense and I love it. And I read it and it got me into Thor in a way that for some reason and Thor never really was able to draw me into the main franchise. I've been hooked ever since on Jane.
3: For me, thanks to Nico, I am on a Thor journey right now basically reading through all of Aaron's run and supplementary materials and pulling myself up through to today I don't know how much of all the like Donny Kate stuff I'm gonna get but we'll see really I'm I'm in it for getting the full background on Jane and I'm not through it yet and this is one of the few times that I have decided to do the journey like this where I'm attacking it at both ends so you know I've I've been primarily reading background stuff and am not all the way through that at all I've, I've I've still got a while to go but I have started reading more recent Thor stuff and this being kind of my big like dig in point and now I do kind of want to pick up more current stuff but I am I like the idea of getting information now that refers to background stuff that I might not have gotten to in my background reading and just kind of slowly piecing together a whole picture of Jane's journey not in a linear way but in a way that often happens with comic books and often did when I was a kid because you didn't have access to stuff in the same way. So I would read current stuff without a lot of background information and not access to background issues. And I would have to get that later. It would be like years before I would be able to get all the new mutant stuff to know the full story of the new mutants. And what I just knew was the recently moved over X Force. I had never read any other background stuff, I couldn't get it. So I'm having that journey again with Jane. And she's a character that I did not know or care much about because my only real experience experiences with, with her or through the movie. I don't love that character, but I am now getting a whole new side of Jane, and I really do adore her, and what Aaron has managed to do with Marvel's Thor and Asgardian mythology, and I'm really excited to see where this takes us.
4: Jane. Uh, so, obviously, I am very much dating Nico, and of the many heroes that uh, I have been indoctrinated into loving, Jane Foster is, one of the first things is, you know, Nico told me he's very much a Thor guy, but he he adores and loves jane more than anything and in the past few months i have really come to love and adore jane in a way where she holds a very specific place in my heart and where i admire and love her and especially as i read more into where she got her beginning and where she got her start as not only as a character but as a hero uh you know having the mantle of thor having the mantle of valkyrie she's such an important character to me and i think to comics in general that um i'm really excited to see her at the forefront i'm really excited that she's going to be you know focused on in a movie where she gets to be the superhero as opposed to a hero in a different kind of way. I do love this Asgardian mythos that the mantle of uh, Odinson slash Thor's powers can be transferred to those who wield Mjolnir and I like that. I think that actually adds a very fun element because I love finding out who is considered worthy within the Marvel Universe. I find it so fascinating to see who's actually able to wield Mjolnir and it doesn't mean that Thor doesn't have his powers or doesn't have, you know, certain abilities anymore but I love that this mantle can be carried by those who choose to wield it or can wield it but also they can kind of reject that calling where they can still wield and use the hammer but they don't have to have go like you know full thunder god mode.
2: Usually this is the point where I'm like I don't know these people etc etc but the funny part is that my dad was actually a huge Thor guy back in college. Spider-Man and Thor and things of that nature so like when we went to see Thor I got a download on like what it all was back in the day and why the Donald Blake is a joke and blah 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 blah. so I'm a little bit aware of like how Thor started I'm aware that we basically just like destroyed the entire Thor line when we Ragnarok in like the aughts I want to say and then we brought them back because of course Um, so for me like I've been very aware that Thor is something that is not quite what the Marvel movie universe says it is I actually don't mind Natalie Portman in the movie I don't mind her portrayal of Jane I mind the what they put that character through or lack thereof in the movies like I feel like she is criminally underused but I feel that way about a lot of amazing female actresses in a lot of the first and second versions of those movies so I was very excited to get into this I knew that Jane was, was Thor at many points and I just needed like a little a little more background on how we got from where she was to where she is
0: and where she is is primed to be one of the only characters that I feel can comfortably move in and out of the modus of this sort of title it's so difficult to engineer situations. Situations Where the audience isn't going to immediately roll their eyes at Jane putting back on the helmet because it's movie time. And I understand the hesitation to accept it. But one of the things that I really thought this issue gave us was a compelling reason and understanding of why Jane could come back into this title. I feel, you know, of Thor, not of comic. And <laughs> I want to avoid some. Some of the more dramatic spoilers about the end of both Jason Aaron's Run Proper and War of the Realms. So suffice to say that Jane Foster has often made it clear that her journey as Thor is very infrequently about a quest for power, but more about a quest for more ways to save people. And I believe Torin Grunbeck really did give us a reasonable story where off the bat, I'm excited to see her step back into this role. Now, I wanted to ask you guys how you felt about this opening
1: sequence. I love what Torrin Grombeck's doing. Like, when she came on the Valkyrie stuff, it really added, like, a sense of depth to Jane's character that was more authentic, more real, and so, like, just, like, her her personification of Jane herself was, like, amazing. Um, And I also love how she's really, like, drawing all of these strings of Asgard around it, uh, around the story and around all of her stories to really like build up Asgard and let these other characters shine. Still let Jane shine but let all these other characters shine without Thor dealing the spotlight. That opening is so cool. I cannot wait to see what is going on here and like it really it like drew me right into the story. I was like ooh okay there is something going on here and this is not just gonna be a fun little like oh time old time Jane meets new time Jane. It's gonna be like yeah, hey, I'm here. There's a compelling story.
3: So are we talking about the sequence with the woman in the red hood approaching everybody or the sequence with uh, Valkyrie and Roz.
0: Oh, believe you me, we're going to spend like 25 minutes just talking about how fucking great Roz Solomon is. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, I can't, oh, Roz Solomon, you take my breath away, girl. But, uh, no, I would love to talk about Red Riding.
2: Yes, who, I- who is Red Riding Hood? Who is she? Who is this? Is it a she? Is it just a person who doesn't like Red Dust? Like, what is this?
3: I love like a, a quick get in the rogues gallery together moment that just kind of establishes what the parent Of a story might be because the great thing here is like she gets yeses and nos, and like I I love seeing the giant Hella. It's a good little establishing shot that doesn't give very much away, but it's just like this is a nice little window into what we might be working with.
4: I love the, I love this episode. We're getting, dude, we're getting the band back together. Um... (laughs) What I think I enjoyed most about this is that there really isn't a lot of preamble we're kind of just thrown into this we're literally just thrown like oh somebody's collecting all these people scorned by Asgard and they're going to start this giant war and like there, there isn't like the, this you know like wandering around to get to them there isn't this like inner you know monologue from the villain slash antagonist it's literally we're already there we're going to skip how we got there and how they found them or how they're going to break them out but they're going to break them out and a war is brewing and I like that added we're just going to get right straight into it because we don't have time to talk about it all this minutia
0: and that's really i think the hallmark of what's made Torin grunbeck's thor such an engaging thor verse you know through valkyrie i just you know, she's she's thor right now she's thor right now has made it so engaging and i love the who's who of asgard that we run through i mean i think i say it every time he appears Ulrich sucks and hella is terrific i was surprised to see Tyr. i feel like this was already a little early but you know okay this opening really did help paint a picture of who ultimately, we still don't know this red hooded figure who they are, but we see who they're pulling together for Enchantress. I know. You're gonna, Jonah and Nathan, I know, you're gonna bring up the singing contest.
4: No, actually, it's not what I was gonna bring up. I was bring up what? something different. Now I am. What? Uh, <laughs> Nathan, would you like to bring up the singing contest first? Or
1: okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so you know, back in the early 80s, Marvel was trying to launch Dazzler, or initially as a crossover with Casablanca Records right so they put all this work in to create this series so to create a supervillain for Dazzler they have Amora come in and they end up having to have a sing-off to see who is going to be the disco singer at the club and like you know while Amora the guy is obviously like you are the most beautiful woman ever this Dazzler Broad is the best singer so she's gonna be the disco singer and that's Enchantress the woman who is behind all of this this whole issue is
0: she
2: behind all of this because if feels like she was just another person to bring on and then she's like, don't mind me, I'm, I'm in it for, for one dude.
4: So it kind of seems like she's pulling the strings of this red hood, little red riding hood. I personally, and it's gonna such a, it's an, a weird take and thing that I enjoy, I actually kind of like Enchantress and Thor together as a couple. We first kind of saw this in Dun 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 Secret Wars yeah. and I, something about them as a couple, I don't know, just works for me. I don't know if it's the specific 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 dynamic i don't know if it's because i think they're so different that that shouldn't work that it does for me whatever it is i like them as a couple and i like when they do interact in a way that seems like a flirtatious or kind of like there is that kind of mutual attraction between them i know that they probably can't be together in a healthy romantic way but that doesn't mean i don't like it now do i think that she's (laughs) going about things in the right way no i think she should also be thinking about her kids i don't know how good thor would be as a stepfather. My- <laughs> She's kids? I- yes, she has yeah, two yeah. twins. <laughs> Man, Strange Academy. Great. But I did get to the ending and seeing that Amora is kind of like, I'm doing this to get Thor. I will have him. I was like, okay, girl, go off. Girl boss, keep gaslight. Do what you need to do. But also, I'm not supposed to agree with you, but I hope you win. Love your hair. Hope you win.
1: <laughs> it's the love your hair for me.
4: i
0: <laughs> For me, you know, I don't ever really root for enchantment. In- because I love watching her lose. It's so satisfying, because she always has these great plans, and at the last second, something goes horribly awry. But there's something in the cold, calculated, careful, sharp dialogue that Torin Grunbeck is putting in this book, where these characters are finally able to break free of the overbearing shackles of, you know, femme fatale slutty mystic woman. Like, you know, when you were saying that you shift. Thor and Enchantress I'm like I'd watch them bang because I like watching pretty slutty people fuck but I don't think they're a good couple but I'd watch that video yeah I'd subscribe but you know (laughs) the idea that these characters have so long been restricted to the role of I'm bad Thor put me in jail like you know ew and now here she's got this very calculated dialogue it's very very thoughted yeah it is It's thoughted, And I think the thing about it is that it's still kind of camp. It's not not camp. It's just so much more considered now. And I think that sets the tone for this book.
1: I love it. It's still camp. It's still got all those really amazing campy elements. Like Amora is still on the verge of being one of those comical villains, but Torrin just does it just right so that she doesn't ever cross that line. But you still get that great camp.
0: I just really think it's incredible that Roz Solomon has the most jewish name in comics like and i mean that really genuinely because her name is so of her faith without her character being super like sabra and explicitly mired in stories about her faith and homeland that it is just an actual bit of careful considered representation and she is quite truly one of the best characters to come out of the thor books in decades and i love roz solomon and seeing jane foster and roz solomon remain friends as jane has taken on this exceptional new role in the marvel universe it really helps heighten the idea that these two women who were at one point sure connected by Thor but now they're connected by the fact that they've been in it together I just think this was the right way to bring us in on Jane with such a dynamic character rendered so well by an artist I believe is new to the title how did everybody feel about seeing the incredible Roz Solomon and then Cap Ah! sorry I got excited because Roz Solomon should hang out with Captain America she would be so good for him
3: so I'm a huge Roz Solomon fan who is she She started as an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., primarily working in environmental sciences, and through that, she gets pleasantly extreme about what Roxanne, in particular, is doing to the environment. Yes, she does. And becomes a really badass S.H.I.E.L.D. agent who just, like, does shit that you want to see S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. Like, S.H.I.E.L.D. always shows up and you're like, I don't want you guys involved in this conflict. (laughs) The Avengers are already working on it. Go do something else. Ross shows up at the places that you would like to see S.H.I.E.L.D., which is, like, finding an evil corporation and going hey, you're fucking evil. And I have now infiltrated as a single individual and I'm blowing up this facility. Hmm. She's just awesome. And I love her. I was really excited to see. She's one of these characters that I think, I mean, I would love to see on film or TV. I would love to see her presence anywhere in the Marvel Universe. You know, I can think as an environmental science, I can think of reasons why she might be really interested in Krakoa and thought it would be really cool to see her there. Um, She's just really awesome. And to Nico's point, you know, you know, if you had a character in marvel named like rivka goldberg <laughs> there would be some insane explanation of how her powers came from the torah that she read as a child like there you it is so rare she got to have a hanukkah character. bush <laughs> it's uh, she can light a menorah from a mile away like there's always (laughs) some weird connection to whatever the obvious background is based on the name and you know, I I know Rivka Goldberg it's like they can just exist in the world there doesn't need to be an explanation for why they exist but you know it's that thing where armor Hisako her powers come from her connection to her Japanese lineage and like sometimes that stuff is cool but oftentimes it's like unless you are a cishet white person you there has to be a reason why any other adjectives apply to you and yeah just Ross Solomon the environmental scientist is that can be a thing that exists too we don't have to have a whole explanation for how she has that name and what it means for her character it's very refreshing to see and I hope that that will continue to extend to other ethnic and minority groups that they can have names that are completely unrecognizable to us and we don't need to get more on that that's just their name
0: yeah I don't need any Cuban powers coming from rice and beans and I I definitely don't need a whole no. lot of gay powers coming from rainbows <laughs> oh, no. from fisting in uh, leather sure but leather but for rainbows no
2: i'm vegan leather yes vegan leather no um leather. lesbians no. get their power from vegan leather oh no yes and ros the environmental scientist would like to remind you that vegan leather is just plastic so please just use leather no i dug it i love a solid like ladies kicking ass and making sure that they know what's going on i, I thought it was a really Really great intro to both characters. I didn't know who that who she was, but I was like, I like her a lot. From
4: what I gathered from the cultural vernacular of memes, I think this was a perfect first date. It almost feels like it's not a first date. I think both of them don't know if the other one likes them. And from what I've gathered from queer women who date queer other women, I, that that sentence makes no sense because if they're
2: whatever. Um, women loving women. Yes, yes, yes. Women loving women. Oftentimes,
4: they'll even be married and still think to themselves,
2: but does she still really like me?
4: Yeah, like I don't know if she's me. into me or not.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's that's real.
4: (laughs) Oh, wait, are we talking about Runa
1: and her date now?
0: (laughs) Right. I was about to say the amount of powerful like women loving women energy in this book is so refreshing because I feel like one of the comments that I find I, I hear in a lot of the segments I edit is it's great to see the you know, this particular female character getting time with these other big male players. And then, you know, there are these standard powerful women that we see a lot magic and Roro, but if you're not a, if you're not keying in for those specific powerful women, your Monet's, your Runa's, your Roz Solomon's, and even your Jane Foster's, they really do get so little panel time that getting to see this organic expression of this idea of a unified front, but still exploring interpersonal dynamics and action sequences. It's the kind of thing that I think we maybe take for granted with the nature of X-Books giving us a team dynamic pretty frequently so getting to see it in the thor verse where this is a celebration of so many women in thor without having to be like look at your a force moment now say thank you is so nice all right are are we at mr horse are we at mr horse is it time to mr horse oh mr horse mr horse uh, I love that Mr. Horse is as campy as it gets. He is yes. silly. He is fun. There is nothing about Mr. Horse that really requires that you know exactly this character's storyline. I'm glad he doesn't have ongoing continuity. But he's just fun, good ties.
1: Hey, he is a working horse. He does not have time to have a really long ongoing plot
2: yeah, line. He's got a union, and he it's about time for his break.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's a part of Local Equine 33, so... Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, I love Mr. Horse. He's like the perfect, like, Tauron uses him in the perfect way. He's Like, he's not overpowering it, but he's just, he's adding a nice little humor break in. He needs his carrots. He's hungry in the union loss. Tell him that Jane has to feed him right now. It's perfect.
3: And just the four panel sequence on the date where you get one empty window and then two panels later, he shows up. (laughs) Yeah. And just like two two quick lines of dialogue. Is that a horse? That's Mr. Horse in the last. (laughs) That's such a good, like, that's all you need. It's perfect.
0: Now, I have to address speaking of perfect, and it's it goes without saying that one of the greatest roles in the entirety of Asgard is mining the bridge. Minding the bridge is like, you know, Heimdall is, in my heart, like, you know, one of the best Asgardians ever. And the performance Idris Elba gives is, you know, exquisite. It's such a shame that Heimdall can't be more present with so many stories, but I really look forward to seeing this interpretation of Sif in in this role as well it is terrific once again to see the further evolution of female characters from thor's life instead of being potential wombs to being Mm -hmm. women who have their own purposes and i think that that's really amazing and then my boyfriend shows up and it's even better i just want to point out that anytime beta ray bill shows up and i get to explain that he is an alien worthy horse android (laughs) is the best day of my life so how do you guys feel about Sif and Beta Ray Bill? Oh, God, Tori, you clearly have feelings. Oh, my I God.
2: Just, I don't like I, I'm like sitting here and I'm listening <laughs> to this and I'm like, you know, I remember enjoying reading this. But every time I sit here, I'm just like, no, I have a lot of questions and none of things make sense.
0: I think that's pretty fair. I mean, you know, does everybody have a healthy relationship with Beta Ray Bill like me or uh, has, is everybody is, a little is bit it healthy worried? Nico, or is it unhealthy? It's pretty fair fucked i'll admit it <laughs> i love beta ray bill he's a uh, an element of the famed walt simonson run and uh if you're in the simonson family and this show you can do no wrong <laughs> so i'm a pretty big fan uh, how does everybody feel about seeing beta ray bill and sith coming in in this support capacity for what is already kind of an already
3: overflowing story so Mika, we covered beta ray bill argent star which is was a weird little it was starting at the beginning to bill itself as almost like a king in black spinoff and then it was just entirely its own thing it was just like they had a little moment of that but the most bonkers part of that book is it starts off with a really horny lady sif being like please fuck me beta ray bill oh. and then he goes okay but i can't not be a horse person <laughs> he goes oh i'ma head out yeah. which to me is the most insane thing anybody has ever said because i i never mind um beta ray bill is beautiful exactly as he is he does not need to be fixed i get that this was not his original appearance it was something that was done to him he is a gorgeous adonis of a horseman he is worthy in all ways he is a hero and i love him very much and i would happily kiss his horse
2: face i should have done more research i should have done more research okay it's got like a slightly
0: more human look it's like a little bit more like look at me and like the the hole that is my face as opposed to the horse snout and <laughs> he used to be able to shift back and forth and then he got stuck in his more extreme form
2: okay um <laughs> so
0: okay now one of the things that i think is so key about this story is i am hyper amused by the visage of the shattered hammer i admit i am not currently caught up with everything donny kate's Thor. So when I think the thing inside the hammer, I think of the mother storm, seeing that it was Odin was particularly surprising. But we do get a line of dialogue that explains that the hammer that now visually represents the style of the hammer that is going to be featured in the upcoming film that likely mirrors the, you know, the look of these characters, we see that hammer have a really specific look to it. Everything about the interpretation of this hammer is particularly interesting intense, whether it's the blood or it's the cracks, instead of showing us a perfect iteration of Thor, we're leaning into what a little bit more looks like the Warhammer depiction, and I think the thing that makes this story work so much for me is that Jane so quickly makes the decision to stay where her knowledge base is, her personal place of power is. By seeing Jane will the force of Thor back into the hammer, and instead choose to engage this threat as Valkyrie with Undrarn is Such a significant moment for me as a fan. It says everything I love about Jane in one fell swoop. How do you guys feel about the decision to forego the power of Thor and instead rely on the power of, in many ways, its near equal, Valkyrie?
1: Jane would have some really hard problems, I think, taking the power of Thor without having some sort of trauma due to how she was before she had to give up the power. Like, she was on death's door when she had to give up the power, and the power was killed her. So I think she would be able to come at it and from a better frame of mind as Valkyrie and use the Thor powers sparingly, but to tip the hammer.
2: I will say that I figured it was a foregone conclusion that she would pick up the hammer. I didn't realize that she could resist it as much. It's definitely a choice. And I think it's, it's one of those things where you can't unring the bell. So like she needs to spend time as Valkyrie fighting the things and then she would level up into the Thor power like there's you gotta you gotta go a to b to
3: c i love that we see both thors on the cover of this book and that sort of sets an expectation and we get a moment of jane in the thor outfit and at the end of the day the statement that for one thing the book is called you know jane foster and the mighty thor that she is now it's not that she is taking up the mantle of thor because the world needs a hero it's that jane foster is now a hero in her own right and and as Nico said she is better off and the world is better off with her staying in that lane there was a time when that was not the case and she did what needed to be done and she became Thor the world needed the power of Thor and that has to be through a conduit and that was Jane that experience made her the kind of person that could be a hero in and of herself and that's what we have in Jane Foster as Valkyrie that's what's really important here and I think making that blatant statement using all of these elements to say like you are getting Jane Foster and this is a Jane Foster and Thor book but you're getting Jane Foster as the hero you're not getting Thor through Jane Foster I think is an important thing to start us off
1: oh can I just say I love the argument between Jane and Odin too (laughs) when she she denies the power and Odin's like what are you doing you fool and she's like uh I don't have to take orders from you I'm not your son
0: I specifically love how much he hates her and how much (laughs) she just doesn't give a shit she never gives a shit she will never give a shit he can't believe some meaning meaningless human insect lifted the hammer and believe right. you me there is also some i can't believe it's a woman and that he's forced into recognizing her worthiness by deed and action and virtue it kills him to have to give her that credit so to now
4: be bonded to her
0: exquisite.
4: Uh, <laughs> oh odin is probably very upset i've been kind of going on a deep dive as i said earlier in the episode and going on a history lesson when it comes to gene foster and to find out that you know thor wanted to marry jane and he kept having to like beg his father can i marry this mortal he's like no you can't do that you can't marry a mortal you get to marry a goddess and i'm going to set you back up with sif but first i'm going to turn jane into an asgardian a god and she's going to freak out like anybody else would when giving thrusted upon power and not knowing what's going on and then be like see she failed the test she's terrible you can't marry her that's kind of like the entire exchange odin really doesn't like jane and that's fine I think it's a great source of conflict and you can get a lot of really great storytelling character moments when you have this these budding forces and truly jane does not put up with any of his shit where you know thor before he became king was kind of like yes dad he was kind of like you know whipped a little bit like that but uh jane's not she has she's not beholden to odin she's not as guardian she doesn't have to follow those customs or she does not give two shits about what odin has to say or do and i very much appreciate this dynamic that's being brought back ever since you know odin died I am very much looking forward to what's going to happen between them. I hope it's more funny conversations. I will say, I though it's Mjolnir it has some sentience, not exactly the my sword is alive, I do love the dynamic of a weapon, a talking weapon, and, you know, its wielder butting heads and going at odds. I think it's hysterical. Usually, like, one of them tends to, like, the weapon usually tends to be, like, very evil and tries to get the person to do evil things. And I love when the, the wielder is, you know, either too dumb or too kind to not do those things. And it's like, curses, foiled. Again, I love that dynamic. <laughs> the initial prompt about all this was about the weapon, right? I think on a weird tangent. It's
0: about, uh, I. you're such a cute boy. I
4: think this moment kind of shows why I think a lot of people should and why I love Jane in that she has so much, I think, love and respect for Thor himself that she knows that not only is he in danger, that this moment wouldn't happen if he was dead. And she, you know, I think she, I honestly just think that she enjoys the responsibilities of being Valkyrie more and treasures. That role very differently than when she was had the responsibilities and powers of Thor. I don't think she wants to go back to being Thor. I think she being Valkyrie, she's kind of being a little bit more of her own person as opposed to being beholden to the rules of being Thor himself. She, or herself. She. I think Jane really has this respect and understanding for that job, mantle, and title. She doesn't really want it. She understands that she is worthy and she can wield the hammer, but that's not the role that she envisions for herself.
0: So we're winding down to the end of our coverage of the first issue of this miniseries and. I have a trillion things I could point out about this book. I want to give it up for the really incredible interior art one more time. The covers are all uniquely incredible, but something all of the copies have in common is definitely the interior art, which shows such a depth and uniqueness to each woman's face. I did not feel that any characters were, you know, generic looking visually. I'm so eager to see the further evolution of Jane and to be honest the legacy numbering really opened up my heart like I was so happy that they're giving torn Grunbeck the room to design an arc. How does everybody feel about where the first issue leaves us in preparation for the remainder of the series?
1: I am psyched as hell I cannot wait to see what Torrin's got coming like just what she set up so far and what she's accomplished in the past with these past Valkyrie miniseries. I am psyched and like I kind of want more to win but not win so like, I can't wait to see her get fleshed out more. Under, like, ugh, like just, like, the subtlety and the nuance in the Samora is amazing. And I can't wait to see more. You want Amora. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> That's Amora. I want Amora. She's so enchanting.
2: Mm. I am very interested because towards the end of the book, we get a lot of Sif being like, because I can see so much of the present, I can pretty much predict the, fu- the future. And this is not going to go well. When we had so much of Jane being able to see people's fates in the beginning of the book to undo the change that would have happened if the if the bomb had gone off. So I think that there is something about sight and foreshadowing and how we can we should be worried but that all kind of, not that we're going to be safe in the end but that it may not go the way we think it will.
3: I think Enchantress is my favorite sexual predator in the Marvel Universe wow. and I'm so excited to see what her exploits get us up to next. I am of course joking. But it is a little like (laughs) I will have Thor as the end of the issue is such a note to go out on. This would not work in a lot of other contexts but it's that panel one page before the end where she's giving that sort of coquettish look over her shoulder as she's talking to the red hooded woman. And it really is just camp as hell. She's the exact right balance I think this book needs because it does feel sort of epic and Weighty within the protagonist stories. The other balance being, for this issue, the date. Those are like the two fun comedy elements that kind of balance this out and make the epic stuff not too much. I think ending with Amora gives us the right tone going into this. I, I want to have a little fun with this book. I don't want it to be too epic and too serious.
4: I love that we have another blonde woman using her magic and power to cast this whole big old plot to gain another man. It's almost like she's doing this tournament and casting a love spell and trying to, you know, bring about two nations together. Oh, wait. I'm thinking of something completely different.
2: What are you thinking of?
4: <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. sorry. <laughs> um, the, the Ten of Swords event was kind of revealed to um, not really be a contest between the Aracos and Krakoans through Otherworld, but more so a giant elaborate plot for Omnitrix, Opaluna Saturnine, to try to win over Brian Braddock, who's married.
3: Win over is a very generous way of putting <laughs> it. Let me rephrase
4: that. Uh, she wanted him as her Royal Omnitrix consort. Uh, I said Omnitrix, I'm pretty sure that I'm thinking of Ben 10. Yeah, it's Omnigestrix, I think. Goodbye! <laughs>
0: Hey everybody, Nico here again. Now we've been talking about covering Avengers for a trillion years, and it's finally here, and of course it's loaded with references to Eternals, which would follow, and references to Earth-X, which way preceded it, but Nathan TK and I really could not wait to talk about this arc, because it's exactly the right time to get ready for Judgment Day, and to really click in with everything going on with these three major pieces moving toward this event that's likely to change the status quo of the Marvel Universe, at least for a consistent considerable amount of time. Now we hope you guys enjoy our coverage and as always you can check out Coverage 3 times a week on this show that's MC2 Mondays, that's Modern Marvel Wednesdays and XI4P Premiere Fridays. You guys can also check the show out at xs for Podcast on Twitter and Instagram and you guys can find me over on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action, that's NicoAction that's N I C O A C T I O N. So until next time when we return to take a look at some slightly different content returning to the MC2 universe to continue our investigation of all things Spider- girl enjoy this last segment keep those mutant lights lit those cohen gateways open remember we are all god's vomit and we'll see you next time Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast 1,000,000 B.C., your premier mm-hmm. comic podcast for Phoenixes, Odins, Panthers, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me riding a woolly mammoth at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on Twitter and Instagram.
1: Hey, it's Nathan, and you can find me on Twitter at A O A, having an existential
3: crisis about how we are all gods vomit. I'm TK, you can find me being the god that vomited because I got a weird case of space scabies on twitter and instagram <laughs> at x nate x gray x man we're really setting
0: the bar here which can only mean that we are finally finally i mean finally nathan i was looking at our notes for it the first time we discussed covering avengers by jason aaron was 19 months ago
1: are you kidding me wow like i you know it gets a lot of love and hate but it is so fun oh my god
3: Also, I feel like there's no better time than now to discuss it. Exactly. Oh, that's,
0: you know, it's been over a year and a half and the tonal shift of the show has been so monumentous for me as a fan. I feel like we've really seen some expanse into new corners of what makes not just the Marvel Universe so great, but what makes our individual fandoms so great. I know there is a myriad of overlap between the three of us, but I have been so grateful for the opportunity to cover things like Jane uh, as Thor, as well as Elektra's rise to, you know, Wolverine status. I know that Nathan, you have been killing it with Moon Knight and Strange. And TK, you've like waltzed into this show and we just sort of throw books at you. How has everybody been feeling about the transformation of not just our core reading, but like the way the Marvel Universe is once again trying to have a cohesive world where everybody can play?
1: Okay. I cannot believe we are in this era. Like the whole X Men line totally seems to be unified in what they're doing like there's no voice that's wrong at all we've got x-men hints dropping up in avengers we've got the avengers picking up some traditionally x-men threads like the phoenix force like wendigo's touched upon after this thing that we're talking about it's so amazing to see all the threads interconnected like this avengers title like really i mean right it spawned eternals it spawned moon knight it spawned so many titles from that we all know and love and it's just so amazingly interconnected it's so good
3: yeah I think when I say that now is really the perfect time to discuss this it's exactly what you're talking about Nathan like we when this book launched I don't think anybody realized that these stories and like even just the seeds planted in this first six issues would be so important to what's going on in the future obviously the some of the big hitches of this storyline are a huge part of what goes on in Eternals and the stuff that's going on in Eternals we now know is leading into a big confrontation with the X-Men. This is all weaving together in really interesting ways and you know to have covered it live even to have started covering it a year ago we might not really have had the same perspective in how this is all coming together but today I think now on the precipice of Judgment Day is really the perfect time to start digging into these stories and to be looking looking at kind of this third big prong of the Marvel universe that I think we've been okay to kind of let stand on its own because while it's really iconic and emblematic, it can oftentimes seem straightforward in a ways that books like the X-Men don't, books like Moon Knight. You don't always need to dig into the Avengers in the same way, but I think now there's so much here that is related to everything else that it's a really good time to dig into.
0: Now, I'm going to say something that's not going to terribly surprise anybody here, but I probably grew up mostly an X-Men fan. I love Daredevil probably just as much as X-Men, to be fair, but even my other big loves, things like Thor, and perhaps my greater love of the wider sense of the street-level characters really developed as I got older. And that means that I have never had the same level of affectionate attachment to Iron Man, Captain America, and Thor as Avengers Prime, as they were dubbed. You know, Kevo cosplays Iron Man like 50 different ways. Actually, my husband is a really big MCU Iron Man fan doesn't really have a whole lot of feels about Iron Man in the comics either way but really a big Iron Man MCU stan I personally try to live my life as a balance of Captain America and Thor and by that I mean take a lot of steroids and drink obsessively so that's the balance I try to strike between the two so in that regard I guess I have a relationship with the Prime but how do you guys feel about this idea of this you know Holy Trinity but for Marvel and by Holy trinity, clearly I. I mean Superman, Batman,
1: and Wonder. Okay, so I started reading in the 90s, right? What a, what, a, what a horrible time, or a great time, depending on, like, what kind of comics fan you are. So, X-Men was my big love, and so was, like, Teen Titans, like, the new Titans were amazing, that 90s Titans oh, totally so my So
0: good, so definitive. Oh, yeah,
1: my other outside of that, my, my other loves were, like, I would always find great back issues of the Avengers and the Avengers West Coast, like, in the bargain bin so I could, like, read these for, like, 25 cents and that's great on an allowance. <laughs> so like, right? Like, who has money for the new ones when you're like twelve? That's my Avengers. Is like the weird '80s Avengers that has like Monica and Jan and, or sometimes, but rarely. But but She Hulk was a big part of it. I can't see the My Avengers, and also in the Crossing era too. Like you know, the big three weren't as big in it. Like My Avengers never really revolved around those three. It's always revolved around the B level players that were getting elevated. And My Avengers has always been the book where it is like... The the be fun book that like you know you could see Beast in and he's blue so
3: I had kind of a similar experience my first like distinct memory of an Avengers encounter is Blood Ties and that's not a very standard Avengers no that's that's so no. X Men bro <laughs> What's, weirdly I also was really into West Coast Avengers and then Force yeah. Works I don't know why there's and I still like I just reread Force <laughs> Works because I was going through the whole thing finding ridiculous outfits that Wanda had been in that I think they should use for another season of WandaVision. Weirdly, I don't think it's bad. It is terrible, but I don't think it's bad.
1: Oh, it's so awful, but I love it. Oh, yeah, man. I
3: mean, it's just so 90s. And so, you know, again, that that baseline is not one where you get Captain America, Iron Man, and Thor in big quantities. The other thing I really remember is the end of Onslaught and Heroes Reborn. Again, not really so much with those three. And then I started reading Avengers with Disassembled and into New Avengers where they're more present, but you don't have that configuration. That's kind of where it really ends. And you never really get them back together like that in the same way until now. So I'm not super married to any conception of iconic. of Like the iconic Avenger to me is really Wanda because she's just kind of all over the place in the stuff that I've read randomly and because she ties the most to the X-Men and because she has the best clothes. I have no connection to Tony, Steve, or... Thor. The crazy thing is like reading The Crossing, my my big connection to Iron
1: Man is Team Tony. So yeah.
0: It's incredible that we're all coming from these sort of similar but varied backgrounds. I really love that for us because the big thing that made me love the Avengers more than anything, the moment where I said, okay, I could be an Avengers stan, was admittedly when they announced the Young Avengers. That was a really defining moment for me. The idea that it wasn't just about the old guard anymore. Now, I know I had grown up. with the George Perez and Kurt Busiek run. But tragically, when you read comics at nine years old, you read them with the mentality of a nine-year-old. And a lot of the nuance and quality of books you grew up with is lost until you read them again as an adult and go, I can't believe I don't have to go out and buy this for myself. Thank goodness this is already in my long box. Thank you, dad. So it's really so special to see the advancement of new Avengers throughout the course of this run. Though admittedly, the only one we get here is Robbie Reyes. I was wondering how you, guys feel about replacement ranks within the avengers the thing that i loved the most going back to read was the introduction of jane and sam as the thor and cap figures and seeing kamala oh man that run really enchanted me and took my heart away it was so good how do you guys feel about this idea of burgeoning heroes breaking into the avengers because i gotta be honest i know people are panning it but i love this new
1: justice league (laughs) (laughs) oh my god the justice league is amazing i love it so much oh my god it's so good it's so good. And it's so crisis related. Oh, I love it. Okay. But anyway, <laughs> I love it because the heart of the Avengers to me have always been, you know, Jan. She's kind of like the lady sidekick of Hank Pym originally. We've got like Monica Rambeau. She was like a replacement for Marvell. you know, name wise, at least. She-Hulk was always huge. She was an obvious replacement for Hulk. So I think it's always been part of it. And that Avengers one you were talking about with uh, Jane Thor and Sam and Kamala, that was so good so i've always loved it i loved getting to know robbie reyes through this run a character who i admittedly didn't know much about but now i want to like read everything about it. and i know nico will probably have a list for me <laughs> but like it's really cool to get to know these characters who can take on these high level threats and you
3: know play well with the the new holy trinity of marvel
0: yeah i have it ready anytime you need
3: i'm definitely a big fan of younger generations coming in In of new characters coming in. I think I love Avengers Assemble shots where like Beast shows up and like Tigra's there, like people that are really not the first Avenger that springs to mind, but have been Avengers in the past. And so when the threat is planet wide, universe wide, and they call Avengers Assemble, everyone who's ever been an Avenger shows up and you look at the panel and you think, I could set aside any of the big names that we all know, any MCU person, and still make an incredible team out of people that nobody associates with the Avengers, people who are all B-listers and C-listers. I think that's one really cool thing about the Avengers. It functions a little differently than you know how you can make a team up of any mutant because we all just kind of fall in love with them in different ways. I don't think anybody falls in love with B-list Avengers in the same way but I think people remember that somebody was an Avenger and think to themselves oh wouldn't it be cool if like all these people that we don't usually think of as Avengers came together and tackled a threat and called themselves the Avengers. So I love that. I love That young people come in and step into Avengers titles. I too really was hooked with young Avengers, and I've always kind of wanted to see those characters, the runaways, the kids who are the champions now, see some of these younger characters get to age up and become legit Avengers and not like, you're the teen that's my sidekick that is now technically an Avenger, but don't get it twisted, you're still a teen. And I feel like we're kind of on the border some of the time with the young Avengers, especially like Wiccan and Hulkling. But it's been well over a decade for a lot of these kids. And I'd love to see some of them age into full on, no questions asked Avengers. But I know that's always tough when we're still kind of looking to the big three to make an impression and be in books. It just, the rosters can get kind of stacked. But I have like to go all the way back. Really loved reading Robbie Reyes and all this. And I think he is a fantastic example of a character that could be hanging with the young Avengers in a new book someday or, you know, be on a team like this and be really comfortable in both positions. So I have one. One more question that I
0: think really goes to the heart of who the Avengers are. And I wish I could say it's a three-person prime in some ways, but I think it's a little too many at this point for that. And good. When I try to think about the women that make up the Avengers, that's you know, so many, so many a fun little queer grew up just thinking about the ways in which they were any number of the incredible women of the Avengers, whether you loved Janet or you loved Carol, whether it was Jen or Natasha for you. I think there's an Avenger woman for for everybody. And if I had to pick one Avenger woman, I'm going to cheat and I'm not sure she's actually an Avenger, but I'm going to go with Nico because I just think it's so incredible that this little runaway hung with a force, like a fourth count. The... Yeah, that definitely. Yeah, I mean, that's so fucking brutal badass that that scared little girl has become this incredible woman that I am so proud to share my name with. Ah, oh, goddamn. That's like that's just one of those moments where it's like I grew
3: up with her. And like now she's a hero. The other thing I think of is the moment, I think it's from Runaways, but yeah, because it's time traveling Gert and she comes back into the past and talks about how Hisako is leading the X-Men and Gert leads the Avengers. And that was one of those moments where I was like, in the future, these, like the characters that they're writing now in Runaways and Young Avengers could be the next Avengers. Like they will age these kids up to a point where they could all plausibly be Avengers. And these are all great characters and I would be really, really happy to see it. Setting that all aside, my woman is Wanda
1: I'll say my obvious answer, which is my true answer, which is Monica Rambeau. Like, Spectrum, Captain Marvel, Photon, whatever you want to call her. She's so iconically Avengers to me as an Avengers female, just from her journey. Obviously, I also love Jan Van Dyne. Like, yes, she is flawed. She's one of those divas that we love to hate. But, like, you know, a lot of us young queers gravitated towards her for some reason because she's fabulous. Like, a more out there kind of answer would be, I'd love to see somebody like Death Cry or you know mask or you know a little bit bigger like Cersei or Crystal come back into the team
0: well I can't think of any better transition into this arc than bringing up the Eternals nice job also great job bringing up the Inhumans you managed to hit the two people that everyone's like which one it's which one has the incest so I love that you nailed that super great and We're here today to specifically talk about Avengers Free Comic Book Day 2018, Avengers Captain America, but specifically the Free Comic Book Day Avengers story. And then we're going to be talking about Avengers 1 through 6. Now, this was all brought to us by the incredible writing of Jason Aaron's nearly limitless brain for some of this stuff. Now, when I say limitless, we are also, you know, God vomit. So like sometimes it goes some wacky fucking places. But, you know, Jason Aaron is a writer that I am, you know, pretty passionate about and so getting to talk about this with just like two of my absolute favorite people in the world is just such such a thrill. The art is by Sarah Pacelli and Elizabeth D'Amico for the free comic book day story with color by Justin Posner. From there we have art by Ed McGuinness on all six issues of Avengers with additional pencils by Paco Medina on issues three through six. Mark Morales, Juan Vlasco, Jay Liston, and Carl Story all provide inks. David Curiel does colors while we have incredible letters from vc's Corey pettit and and a number of unbelievable covers though i think the standard trade cover is you know pretty iconic at this point for this run of avengers all right let's start with the story that i think has some of the most beautiful art in the whole fucking book man can
3: sarah pacelli draw anything really just gorgeous iconographic art yeah
1: that opening panel that odin now
3: how do
0: you guys feel about the avengers 1 million bc i have to be honest of all of the silly campy ridiculous things in the marvel universe this is mine i think i love it so much and i talked about this on our eternals coverage which of course three of us were on together but i love it so much because it is so ridiculous and i kind of have this understanding of sliding reality every time reality has to be fixed a little bit something changes so like you know what seven years ago there probably wasn't an avengers 1 million bc but now there is and that's cool it's just fun and silly, and it gives me a ghost writer riding a woolly mammoth, and I can't be mad about
1: that. Okay, so the first time I read through this, I was like, oh my god, they're so awful. Like, why do we need a 1 billion BC? But every time I've reread the arc, I, I fall a little bit more in love with just how amazingly ridiculous it is. Like, especially to, like, have us Hulk star brand uh, and just, like, a random phoenix who just happens to be red-haired, and that was, like, her mutant ability. But yeah. Amagato. Like, we actually get to see Amagato, like, live and in the flesh. It's so fun. It's so amazing. I, I, it's so ridiculous. It's everything.
3: Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like even 5 years ago, maybe even 2 years ago, I would have been I was so cynical about this and just not okay with it, but the older I get, the more I delve into comics criticism and experience wider types of and experience new and different types of storylines. I become more and more forgiving of ones like this that I feel like I shouldn't have to take seriously but ultimately both kind of end up taking too seriously and not seriously at all. I don't know. My point being my like my icy cold heart on this one has really ended up melting as time has gone on. It's stupid. It's fun. If you really hate it so much if you are the future Jason Aaron, Grant Morrison, Jonathan Hickman that is going to come into the fold one day and be able to write these stories you can probably find a way to retcon the Avengers 1 million BC that changes it so it's not something that like directly is the past affecting the future or the present. If you really hate it, there's ways around it. But the fact of the matter is, there has been so much silly stuff written for Marvel comic books that we have all integrated into our canons and understand to be a part of it. This really is not the worst offender in any way. And in a lot of ways, it's really fun and interesting. I think seeing these almost platonic forms of of various characters that we know and love is potentially an important touchstone for how we look at the characters going forward. At worst, this might be really silly and dumb, but at best, it could kind of end up making something greater of all the characters that it's kind of informing and commenting on.
1: That's the criticism I always hear about Avengers 1 billion BC is that, you know, it doesn't make sense. You know, how how did that happen like that? Yet, you don't hear people talk about how there was a dead celestial body basically sticking out of the ice at one of the Earth's pole and nobody knew about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know where we choose to suspend our disbelief it does seem a little arbitrary and look everybody gets to make their disbelief decisions for their diselves, right I'm not here to judge anybody's disbelief ratio but I do feel sometimes like certain writers like perhaps writers who take on these big titles there is a different meter by which we measure them. I feel like when people hear Jason Aaron's writing Punisher, and they hear punisher leads a death cult everybody's just like okay sure but then they hear aaron's writing avengers and there's an avengers 1 billion bc and they're like in a universe where a radioactive spider bit a teenager (laughs) and he can fight god now that's a step too far and i'm like is it because we're using event metrics instead of using intimate series metrics because like when you think about and i know that i know Know that's presentation. I know that that is the way we present the book reflects the cultural understanding of the book. And I'm not here to judge anybody's judgment of it, but I do think it is an interesting determinant that we make as a society that the quality of something often rests on its title. And I feel if this was not such a key series in the Marvel Universe, people would maybe be less severe of it. And that might be the cost of the book being called Avengers.
3: But I think there's also, when you mention something like The Punisher, and, you know, Aaron's writing the Punisher with the Punisher leading a death cult, that can make sense to people because that pitch really speaks to what the Punisher is about, which is essentially just, like, wanton killing for whatever reason. You know, we can get into that further, but, like, the whole point of the Punisher is the Punisher kills. Punisher shoots to kill. That's his whole thing. With the Avengers 1 million BC, I think Aaron has hit on the same thing, which is there must always be Avengers. There must always be heroes. That is a part of what Earth is, and I think in this first, volume he justifies why that is the case and how that is the case and so even though it might seem a little silly even though it I mean you know again like the kid written by a radioactive spider there were no mutants in 1 million BC all right everybody calm down the science is whatever it's going to be in the moment the whole point is as long as this planet has been here there have been people who have wanted to defend it it's Aaron hitting on what the core of the title that he's writing is which is something that he's really good at and the manifestation of hitting on that core might not be something that you like but you can't deny once you've read something like his entire Thor run as you read something like Punisher when you look at something like Avengers you have to believe and accept that there's more to this than just the silly idea of the million BC Avengers he understands something that even if you don't like it you have to respect.
0: Now I want to point out that as a huge Aaron Thor fan if I have one perhaps Criticism of this as a book that is adjacent to Thor, right? Like, I mean, you know, when like a book is like that person's book, and it's not like I'm saying that, you know, Jason Aaron isn't capable of writing anything because I think his Wolverine and the X-Men, like, is famously in my top three X-Men runs of all time. I don't think he's just a Thor guy, but I think when he writes characters that are connected to his Thor, it winds up feeling like an extension of his Thor, like you can connect the sort of the ley lines that bring it back to the same mystic map, you know? And I perhaps think Loki was just a bridge or, you know, it's like a transition tool. You know, it's like that guy who's when he's doing his first gay for pay is like, but can I hold the football? It makes me feel straighter somehow. You know, it's like, can I just can I have the guardians? Is that OK? And like, I get it. I really do. Because I know that when you're so synonymous with a sector, you know, you want to be able to make sure that everybody knows you're still providing the same quality of character. I just do personally not connect with Loki here in the same way I connect with all of the brilliant Loki character work in Aaron's Thor.
1: I'm not as familiar with Aaron's Thor with Loki in it because I I focused mainly on when Jane Foster was in the title and and really Loki kind of always was like somebody who I never really cared about so I didn't pay as much attention. But Loki's inclusion in the story was one of the things that felt that felt forced in a a series that was, you know, introducing 1 billion BC Avengers. That was the part that felt forced to me Just to have Loki come in and just because of his connection with uh, having caused the Avengers, so they had to have him re-cause it again.
3: Like, that was the one thing that fell for. Coming off of the heels of all of our MC2 coverage in which whenever there's a really big event, there's like a 50% chance that Loki is involved. For me, this was just kind of a reminder that this book is about core Avenger stuff, iconic Avengers concepts. This is a way to draw people in who have been experiencing the entirety of the MCU but have maybe stayed away from the comics to give them both the intro to the Avengers that might hook them in but also show them how much more varied the comic world is and the fewer constraints that it relies on. So to me seeing Loki in this book was really just another example of that flagship thing that when the Avengers are assembling for the first time at the start of a story, there's got to be a Single villain that they can all joke with and hate on, and it's probably gonna be Loki. This just felt kind of like not in a bad way, but like I don't want to say by numbers, this felt like the inevitable thing that would happen that it would be Loki because he is their starter villain. That's what shoots the gun off and then they're off to the races. It's gotta be Loki.
0: Now that does conjure up a very specific question. I love this book. I, you know, I've been pushing to cover this book for 19 fucking months. You know <laughs> what I mean? But I do have to say, I think. Think it is perhaps four-thirds too many characters. You know, it's just like Doctor Strange is a character that once again, when Jason Aaron writes, people drop what they're doing and grab that book because Jason Aaron's Doctor Strange is definitive. But, like, was there room for him here? No. You know, it just, it felt like one too many alongside Panther.
3: Uh, and my argument to that is, no it didn't, because it just doesn't matter. This is not, <laughs> this is not the book where those types of constraints are going to make things so different that it will change the quality and caliber of the book. This is a big blockbuster, bombastic fun book. This is not going to give us the intense character study into what makes Steve Rogers tick. It's going to give us a lot of quips and one liners, some incredible displays of power, some beautiful art that shows us these characters in ways that we will always want to remember them. And yeah, Aaron through all that will manage to sneak in a lot of moments moments that you will remember about a character and that will build your image of them. But he's not going to do in this book, I think a ton of that intimate character work that we see like in his Thor run. And so for me, it never like I felt like there could have been 10 more characters. This book is utter silly chaos the whole time. And it just I I think there couldn't have been enough Avengers in it.
1: I feel like like any arc, there's gonna be star players like in this arc, it really felt like those who got the most characterization were Robbie Reyes and Odin like I felt that like Odin got more of a compelling story than pretty much everybody else besides Robbie Reyes so maybe the cast is too big but like TK was saying it's just it's so fun and everybody got a little moment to shine. It's kind of like going into uh, Infinity War Endgame and expecting, you know, like great screen time from everybody when you just got to try to fit everybody in and have fun. Are you doing?
3: You're just happy to see Mantis there getting into battle pose. Yeah. You don't need a five minute monologue from her.
0: Yeah, in my top three moments of the entire film number three is specifically Wasp nodding at Ant-Man that Cat believes in her. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> hot. it's like un- It's so my favorite moment in the entire film is specifically Carol shrugging off Thanos' punch (laughs) (laughs) anyway we're talking about this uh, and you brought up Robbie you brought up the awesome that is Robbie so let's let's do it this is unfucking real Robbie Reyes was gonna be any other character relaunch that didn't work how many times have they done this where they take a character and they try to reinvent them some way you know I think about the number of them that didn't work and it's kind of hard to count because they all that aren't miles and kamala and now robbie fade into the background you know i guess sam i guess sam and amadeus really never hit the way i thought they should uh you know because i love amadeus you know i am dating amadeus cho so like i get it but it's <sighs> Robbie, man, he's so good in this book. And the fact that Aaron took the chance on him to me has always been shocking.
1: It feels like he found something he really loved in the character and he just he was like, I gotta bring this out. So if you're gonna have me do this Avengers team, I want Robbie Ray as
3: well. Given our coverage of Ghost Rider lately and the various Ghost Riders that I have been encountering in my reading, I could have seen this going a lot of bad ways. I I totally get the spirit of vengeance and ghost rider being in in the 1 million BC Avengers and that needing to translate into the present day Avengers. But, you know, he easily could have picked Johnny Blaze. I think it was such a great choice to go with Robbie. I do think it was a risky one, but from everything I've read of this run, I think it really pays off. And unfortunately, I think it's to the detriment of Johnny Blaze because as much as I find something very special about the writing of the current Ghostwriters series by Ben Percy through no fault of his own I have just stopped being as excited about the character the original Ghost Rider Johnny Blaze than I am about Robbie Reyes who just feels like who if if you want Ghost Rider to be a character that I follow in 2022 it needs to be Rob.
0: yeah I mean genuinely just yeah that's the complexity of legacy titles and not always getting the one you want in the book you want but you know that's kind of the magic of this book in some ways, and I'll admit it is, uh, it's kind of rough magic for a little bit, but let's bring this story to She-Hulk, who goes on the most unusual journey in this title. You know, she is out of control with rage. We ultimately get to a place that is beyond satisfactory, but the journey here, whether it is seeing her lose control and Robbie being afraid she's about to turn on him, or you know, getting cosmic god powers, this is a really, Specifically, like vertigo take on She Hulk. How do you guys feel about this iteration of the Jade Giant? <sighs>
1: Okay, so that was probably the thing that initially put me off on Aaron's Avengers at first was She Hulk in the series. You know, she had this really great arc in her Hulk series where she, you know, really came back from a lot of this. And then, you know, to see her kind of regress back to the the angry Hulk, like just really wasn't my cup of tea. I, now that I've seen the journey that she's gone on, uh, I absolutely am here for the whole thing. But at the time, it was such a big stickler for me that I kind of, Like, I still picked it up, but I I didn't as eagerly read Avengers when it was first coming out.
3: For me, it wasn't a selling point one way or the other conceptually. But once I started reading this, I did not love in this first arc the way she is just kind of hulking and doing, like, Hulk smash talk. Just not my favorite version of Jen. But at this point, knowing how much there is left and then actually having already read the World War She-Hulk stuff in preparation for reading the relaunch of She-Hulk there is clearly more going on here and so I was kind of okay with it. She-Hulk wound up being one of the characters that kind of by the end of it pushed me over the edge of taking this too seriously and you know maybe thinking something like there's too many characters in this book. She-Hulk's not even doing anything. Why is she here? To just being like this is dumb and funny and she's just being monosyllabic and like making out Thor. That's stupid. They're getting giant. That's dumb. I love every minute of it. This is just a big bomb book, and I'm having fun no matter what choice they make next, no matter who shows up in it, and I think she's really emblematic of that like, I am along for the ride
1: I do have to say, when she ate the Asgardian egg, like and she grew to giant size that was a moment I was like this is the best camp thing I've ever seen, and I am here for the ride, like, what was my problem before, like, sign me up for this pure fun, it's like, it's like Savage Avengers was, where it's like a blood Good time. That's what this is. It's just a, not bloody, but it's an amazingly camp epic good time.
3: Just the nonsense idea that the problem that they're having is they're not big enough to punch the celestials. Yes. So they get so they get a thing that makes them big enough so they can punch the celestials. That's so dumb, but it's so good. Like, and then the visuals are so good because all you want to do is see them punch celestials.
1: I love it as much as I love in the Ultimate Universe when they used pin particles on Kate Pride and had her take. Galactus.
0: Yes. And speaking of larger than life things in this book, you know, I don't think that we should be running around being like the celestials are good guys. I grew up on Earth X. So I grew up on a universe that told me the celestials fucking suck, man. Never trust a celestial. They're the worst. And I I continue to think that, you know, and I'm really glad to see that in AU that so influenced me, you know, and then Coulon Gath, speaking of Savage Avengers, you know like it's really cool to see that the AUs that influenced me as a kid continue to influence the writers that are writing today and in that regard the Celestials are like maniacal cosmic Emil Gargunza level supervillains in this and I am fucking fascinated by the villainization of them how do you guys feel about the Celestials basically being Dr. Evil looking for one million dollars
1: that change of the Celestial story like I would found it boring before where the Celestials were like oh they came and they came in all these hosts and they set up all these experiments on humanity and that's why humanity progressed the way it is like just to find out there really was no master plan that the Celestial only were invested in Earth because uh, you know one of them died and threw up in the lava rivers and like caused humanity to come like I, I just love how it flips that really boring all no race and it makes them a little bit more complex and the horde celestials are so amazing like ah just like evil celestials knocking
3: celestials down to earth I think this might have been one of the few things that I wasn't as in love with as the rest of it only because I felt like there was a chance here to go the route of a greater level of unknowability among these giant space gods and instead they kind of tried to hedge their bets. Like, one of the big moments I'm thinking of is when the progenitor's girlfriend comes and they're (laughs) like, it's not really his girlfriend, and she wasn't really grieving him, but that's what it was. And it's one of those things where it's like, they're trying to be like, they're really unknowable, so you can't know why they were here, but also the explanation is that she was sad and she just showed up. It was a weird moment. It just, it didn't give me the same level of like, mind-blown so, and it's funny because it's Celestials they literally are so big they can't fit on the page and yet there is a little bit of like trying to squeeze in some ideas that I feel like should be way too large for anybody to understand or explain in that way where you know Ron D. Moore always said like it was better not to show a lot of Cylon culture because what you can come up with in your own mind is a lot weirder and scarier. There's a lot about Celestials that I feel like we shouldn't ever really know or get canonized because whatever we might come up with is probably going to be cooler to us than somebody putting on page like oh it's actually this. I love the idea of the progenitor and what that could mean for Earth. But from there some of the stuff that we got into with the Celestials just wasn't my favorite conception of what's going on.
0: And I feel like for me, the moment that was the only moment where I would say like, lost me, lost me was I did not need Cap lecturing Loki on how he's not going to give up hope. Because that maybe felt just a little bit too rote. It felt maybe just a little bit too for the movie crowd. And there's nothing wrong with paying the bills. I am not here to come after a writer who is simply providing what is a necessary element of the superhero culture narrative. Like he is hitting a story beat that the audience will be looking for. So I readily accept that that's going to be part of the story. For me, if anything is the issue here, it's that it felt more by the books than it felt like a moment of emotional passion. And that's my frustration.
3: I felt- Felt like you could have had that moment rather than being, you know, kind of something that, yeah, was managed to translate for maybe people that were coming off of the movies. You could have had it been more of like a fun, quippy moment where, you know, it's almost more of a one-liner where Cap's like, you know I'm never giving up. I'm Captain America. And then Loki's like, oh, you fucker. And you just yeah. kind of move through it rather than doing the full thing like as sincerely on page as you possibly can. I Because I feel like for movie fans, they've seen it on screen enough that in the comics you can be like, you know who I am. I'm not giving up. And you don't have to rehash it. And for comics fans, you definitely have to rehash it. So I I see where you're coming from with that, for sure.
1: Yeah, felt like it was definitely to help explain the character to maybe a crowd of people who were just reading Avengers for the first time, maybe from the success of the movie and seeing the team that they love. It, it did seem very forced. But it also, for me, from my X-Men fan point of view, where a lot of X-Fans see Captain America as, you know, definitely. A yeah, a cop, not an ally. I definitely doesn't do enough for mutant rights it, it kind of helps you recenter how you're supposed to see him in Avengers book
0: I love that take and it reminds me that I sometimes come from it maybe a little too close to seeing like I tend to it sounds so bad but like if somebody really misses the point of cap with a cap run I just skip it uh, you know that's the magic of comics skip what you don't like you make your own canon because every writer doesn't have every reference you do and you just gotta hope for some fucking overlap you know and when somebody doesn't get my cap right i just kind of skip it just miss me with that nonsense and i zero back in when i'm happy with the cap and not that this is bad cap by any stretch but when somebody does miss the point of cap like and you know turns him into annoying cop yeah just zone (laughs) out so
3: i definitely get that
0: that's i think the danger of the avengers having a trillion people on it
3: (laughs) that they're easier to zone out
0: (laughs) yeah truly that there's so many you never really have to like worry that much about anybody's particular characterization.
3: But I think that's a good thing for this series. I don't... I think in a lot of cases it wouldn't work, but I think this is the one where you want that to be the case, because god forbid this is the book that gives you like a definitive look at captain america
0: (laughs) (laughs) well the thing that this book gives me a definitive for sure is a definitive look at a robbie reyes that is perfectly in line with my robbie reyes you know not like uh as a guy who's read every appearance of robbie but like as a guy who's read every (laughs) appearance of robbie reyes i feel you know uniquely qualified to be like that is good robbie that is bad robbie this is very good robbie and it's done with with uh, a care and an attitude. And I have to level with you. I am obsessed with piloting a Celestial. All I ever want to do again is watch Rob. Like I literally have the Celestial mini, you know, the Celestial build from the Eternals uh, Lego sets. And I have my Robbie sitting on its shoulders because this was the greatest thing that's ever happened.
3: I do really love the broader conception of vehicle for Ghost Rider that we've been getting in these last few Few years, be it woolly mammoth, celestial car that can become amphibious at the drop of a dime. I think it's great. I those are the types of things that they should be big and funny and a little bit stupid, but like you can also carry that away. Like now the possibilities for what a ghost rider comes riding in on are endless. And like I mean, we saw it in this most recent issue of Ghost Rider, where he hijacks a semi-truck and the semi-truck possessed looks really fucking cool. It's, I think, where this book shines most is when it can do a moment of creative character development that is big and fun and still feels true to who the character is.
1: I think, kind of to piggyback on that, one of the things that this book has done really well is, you know, to give those big definitive character moments, but also to, you know, a- along with this this bombastic, fun, like, exciting, by a minute story, there's some deep nods to continuity when we get mentions about Jean Grey and, you know, obviously them visiting the Eternals, and you no, know, there's even the Hellfire Club mentioned in it. So, like, all of these great layers are actually layered in.
0: Yeah, we get my beautiful Captain Britain with the beard. That is like when I want to yes. kiss him the
1: most. Oh, man, he looks so
0: good. Even with the that Ebony beard.
1: Blade is mentioned. I was like, Dane Whitman, justice.
0: Yeah, you know, and I feel like it is kind of a service disservice that we're able to vaguely go through this without kind of mentioning the Eternals. It's a bummer. You know, our coverage of the Eternals, actually alongside all of our partners, amazingly Mm -hmm. enough, is... It says a lot more because it talks about it from the Eternals' perspective, but the Eternals are are a footnote that barely get more attention than uh does Gladiator of the Imperial Guard.
1: Okay, the Eternals got Alpha Flighted. (laughs) Just like brought in for our panels. rough (laughs) Alpha Flighted. Yeah. (laughs) But it paid
3: off. That's the crazy thing. I mean, this is my second time... reading this arc and the first time I really didn't think anything about that and then reading Eternals I like only vaguely really thought about it but this I mean Gillen pulls the important parts of this Avengers story that are really relevant to Eternals and connects the two in a way that is defining for the entire Marvel universe that's setting us up for a really cool story coming up this summer and I think even though I don't even I can't for the life of me remember what I thought about this the first time that i read it but now it feels like even though it seems like they're kind of short changed for the big deal it is that they're all dead the way that that kind of picks right up in eternals number one is to me perfect i can't agree more
0: because it really
3: is like they
0: said you know Jason aaron you just need to get this out of your system like just purge the book you know move forward and i think that's what this run really is about i you know ultimately of course they stave off the final horde low he laughs, the Avengers are back. Really, so many of the fight sequences in this book, I don't want to call them forgettable, but I think I would like to acknowledge that they were not designed to be ultimately the point of consequence in the story. I think what we are meant to think is the point of consequence in this story is the bigger play uh, at stake for the Marvel Universe, the more dangerous context for what's happening to these heroes. At the end of the day, this for me wasn't the heralding that the Avengers are back, but rather this was a declarative statement that an era that you have been witnessing is coming to an end. In that regard, this is the beginning of what is truly a eulogy for the Marvel Universe as we've known it, allowing for things like Krakoa and the Eternals to occur. And I think in that regard, it really is an outstanding victory carrying a company banner so that other titles can flourish while Avengers carries the status quo for an entire universe. I
1: think- Overall, it's a story that really ties in this AU that a lot of us loved, EarthX, right? So, a lot of us grew up on that. It was huge, like, amazing things. So, a lot of fandom is going to be okay with messing with the Celestials having caused things. The important thing was believably coming up with a team, which I think this really did because it was able to give connecting reasons as to why certain characters were chosen. I
3: think you really hit the nail on the head, Nico, with the idea that this needs to be the flagship book for recognizable and comfortable Marvel Comics continuity from which other things can spin off and get really wild, but the Avengers can kind of always be a core and an anchor and an endpoint for fans from all over to see reflections of what they know about the Marvel Universe from other media or just from what they've heard in ways that are comfortable and digestible and fun, and I, I say safe, and I don't want that to be uh, a derogatory term, but safe. I mean, I think it's a lot easier to get into this book than even a book that is such a blank slate like Eternals. Getting into that Eternals runs 12 issues and 3 solos, but it really does ask a lot of you as a reader. These six issues of Avengers do not ask a lot of you, but they give you a lot and they give you a really good in into the Marvel Universe.
0: Yeah, okay, these don't ask a lot of you. I like that. And you know, Nate, Nathan, to your point about this is meant to like give us a reason why these characters, yeah, because think about the people that ultimately at least remain on the covers of a lot of the trades. It's the people that reflect the 1 million BC Avengers, even if not directly in a one for one parallel like the Phoenix. I think this does help me see that perhaps the Judgment War framework has always been there, that this isn't just, you know, new, this isn't something they just came up with on the fly but rather we've been building toward this for quite some time.
1: And and it also helps the BC Avengers not turn into like just some kind of weird random joke where they're like the BC 52s like doing the Flintstones theme song. So like it, it really <laughs> um it, it really like cuz I mean like otherwise if, if you didn't have this current team sort of reflect that then then it would just be some weird random like here's the first Avengers, you know, like so like I, it's really important to bring that all together.
0: If there's any big thing for me that I'm really hoping for from the future of the Avengers beyond what you know we know is out there what we've read it's inevitably this current run of Avengers which is at 56 I think or 57 in solicits no it's 56 is out so like 60 is in the solicits this this is a really long run Marvel doesn't let books run this long usually and it has been like 10-11 trades now I would love to see Marvel Marvel trust this to keep going and transition the universe into whatever comes next because this has been a really definitive change for what I've expected of an Avengers book and guys I can't wait to cover the next few volumes with
1: you you know what, Odin and Lady Phoenix, it's kind of hot.
0: Yeah, it does. It works for me. It works for me so hard. It works for me so good. I don't even care. I want to be bothered by it. I am such a Jean Grey purist. And like, Jean Grey more than Thor. I love Jean more than I love Thor. Jean should take preference. But I just don't mind that you know what, because Phoenix deserves a fucking Odin spark level dickhead. Yeah. And she does some big fucking Phoenix work with that big fucking hair. And it just works for me,
1: and and even like a billion years ago, Odin is finding mead everywhere. It's amazing, of course, she's gonna love it. Uh,
0: so you I... gotta weigh in.
3: <laughs> I, uh, <Lord. laughs> sorry, TK. listen, I would be okay with it if somebody wrote it to make it work. I don't think for me it does not work on page right now. I still have fun with it again, silly. I enjoy it, it's funny, but because I know where we're going with Phoenix throughout this book, where. Where it's going in the future that has not been published yet. And then now we're hearing a lot of stuff about what's coming up in Judgment Day as well. I'm just kind of like we need to standardize some stuff with the Phoenix and then I'll be cool with it. At the end of the day I absolutely get the appeal and why it's fun and funny and a little bit sexy. It's a lot
0: bit sexy I'll have you know. <laughs> but either way, this has been such an exciting episode and I am genuinely out of my mind excited to cover World world tour volume two with you guys we're then looking at a pretty heavy run we have war of the vampires is volume three volume four is then war of the realms volume five is my personal favorite challenge of the ghost riders volume six is Starbrand reborn volume seven age of Konshu, and volume eight enter the phoenix at which point we're gonna have to make some heroes reborn decisions <laughs> <laughs>